We are going to continue our series called Love and Hate. Love and Hate. I love you, Tony. Thanks, bro. All right, well, I guess since we're on this series on love and hate, and we've been talking about um, relational stuff and um, learning to have grace for each other, I guess I just need to start out with a confession. I unintentionally lied to you last Sunday. Because last Sunday, I told you that we were going to talk about relational unity in the church last week and doctrinal unity this week, and we're not going to do that. We're going to do part two on relational unity because I just felt like there was more stuff we needed to unpack. So next week, we'll talk about doctrinal unity, and you probably don't believe me now because I've broken trust, but I guess you'll just have to come and see next week. Um, no, but so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to kind of jump into a part two of this. So let me give you like a minute and a half synopsis on where we've been. I would encourage you, you can go back and listen to, to this series. Um, we've kind of laid a foundation for about six weeks um, that's now prepared us for some of the stuff we're moving into over the last week or two and going forward. Um, but the first two weeks of this series, we talked about love and about hate. And at the, at the basic level, we said that we've got to learn to let God define for us what we love and how we love and let God talk to us about hate. Now, there should not be a whole lot of hate going on in our lives, but there are certain things that the Bible says God hates. And even those things, specifically the things that God hates, it's through the lens of love. And if we don't get that, we're missing the boat completely. God loves people so much that he hates things that rip us off or destroy us. That's the only thing he hates. He loves people. He hates things that cause damage or harm. And so we unpack that over a couple of weeks. Then we began to talk about the fact that we have this father who loves us so much that he will correct us. When we enter that relationship with him, if, if you've been around at all, people who are walking with Jesus are still pretty messy. I mean, my, my hand goes up and... You know, I'll raise your hand for you because I've gotten to know some of you people. So it's messy. Life's messy. And so we, we, you know, we need to grow and to change. And it's actually a reflection of God's love that he will correct us for our benefit, for our benefit. And all too often we've experienced um, forms of correction in our life that were harsh or mean-spirited. We've been rejected by people. And it's really easy then when we talk about correction to begin to feel like correction means I'm being rejected. And whether that happens in our personal relationships, that's not what God does. His correction is a form of love, not rejection. And so then our response to that, when God comes along and corrects us, is to, to acknowledge it. We use the word confess. We confess our sins. We acknowledge it. God, this is the thing. Not some vague, phony confession where I'm not really owning it, but a specific, tangible, God, this is the thing I've done that has caused harm in my own life. It's, it's damaged somebody else. And so I am sorry for this specific thing. We own it, but we don't have to keep it. We own it in order to give it to him. And so then, then we do that thing called repent, where I recognize the thing that's broken and messed up, and I turn from it. But repentance isn't just turning away from something. It's turning towards something. We turn towards God. And, and we move more and more into healthy relationship with him and others. And then ultimately the third thing we do when we've confessed and repented, we just receive forgiveness. It's freely given by him. And some of us are really bad at accepting it. We keep beating ourselves up when God has said, I've already forgotten it. I love you. We've dealt with that. Look at Jesus. Look at my son. He dealt with that on the cross. You're forgiven. Accept it. And then we carry those same things into our relationships with one another. We practice confessing and repenting, seeking forgiveness and giving forgiveness with one another. And so then from there, we talked about learning to, to love God and love people well and looked at the story um, of the rich young ruler and the good Samaritan. And you can go back and listen to those. And so then finally, last Sunday, we talked about learning to maintain unity in church relationships. Maintain unity. And kind of our key verse was from Ephesians 4.3. I just want to remind you of it. it. says, Paul wrote and said, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But he uses that word eager. It requires specific, tangible action on our part. Unity has to be maintained. 
If it's neglected, if we don't deal with problems when they arise, if we don't proactively invest in loving relationships, then relationships will slowly deteriorate. That happens naturally. And so our position in Jesus is that we're all connected. I mean, you might look around the room and, and I'm telling you, this is your family. If you have a relationship with Jesus, this is a part of your family. You may not be thrilled with that when you look around the room, but that's your family. God calls us not only family, he calls us one body. So when something's wrong with this person over here, it affects this person over here. And so we are to work towards having healthy community and unity with each other. And so we proactively deal with problems, but we also proactively pour into each other and build up and encourage so that when hard times do come, it's not if they come, when they come. If you've had a relationship with somebody that's gone more than six months or a year, or you've started to go deeper, maybe in a friendship or a marriage or siblings, you know there's going to be problems. I can't think of one relationship that I've had that was significant that didn't have some form of a problem along the way. But when we face that, we get to those moments, if we've invested in each other, we can get through it. We can get through it. So those are some of the things that we talked about. So this morning, we are going to specifically talk about resolving relational conflict. So the whole, the whole message is about dealing with relational conflict. So let's pray one more time. Let's prepare our hearts. I want to encourage you as, as we pray, um, there's, there's a couple possibilities this morning. This could be a message that just really equips you for the future, for things you may face in the future. And we are going to be able to handle difficult things in our relationships so much better if we've prepared ourselves ahead of time. And so for some of us, this can be equipping. For others of us, we might need to be open to the fact that there might be something God wants to highlight in our lives right now that he wants to heal and deal with. And so let's be open to letting him speak to what that may be and help guide us into how we can, we can walk that out. And so let's pray and prepare our hearts and invite him to come and do that. And then we're gonna jump into this this morning. So Jesus, one more time, we come before you. We thank you that you are here and present. Jesus, as we unpack your words, as we unpack some things that um, you poured into Paul's life and James' life, God, through your word, I just pray that it would be real to us. It'd come alive. God, that we could see ourselves in this. Lord, if we've wronged someone, help us to be willing to own that, make it right. Lord, if we've been wronged, guide us into how to walk out grace and forgiveness and resolve conflict. Jesus, we need your help. We can understand everything mentally that we study this morning, but God, without your presence, we can't do this. We cannot do this without you. And so we thank you that we are not alone and that you're with us. Jesus, show us what to do and then give us strength to walk it out. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, I grew up playing basketball, love basketball, and I'm a pretty competitive person. Now, I'm competitive even in things that I'm not good at, but I'm especially competitive if I think I'm good at it. Notice I said think, if I think I'm good at it. And so I would love to tell you that this story that I'm about to share happened when I was in high school or maybe when I was like some, you know, early 20s kid playing rec league basketball. But the truth is the story I'm about to tell you happened three years ago <laughs> in our church's gym between me and one of my best friends. So we have this, this standing early morning basketball thing that we would do with a bunch of guys at our church. We would do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it's just pickup basketball. You know, it's six, eight, ten guys playing out there. And so, you know, we're having a really important, in the grand schemes of eternity, a really important basketball game one morning. And in the middle of that game, a ball bounces off of somebody and goes out of bounds. It couldn't have been more obvious who it bounced off of. <laughs> I was very clear on that and had confirmation from several witnesses. And so I very strongly affirmed who that ball was off of, and therefore it was our team's ball. Well, my, one of my best friends, David, highly disagreed. I think he must have been looking in another direction or something at the time, because he insisted it went off somebody else. So we get, we get in this argument, and then I'm drawing people into it. I've, I've got people on his team telling him he's wrong, and he's got people on my team telling me I'm wrong. I mean, we've like recruited, I mean, we're, we're holding fast to this really important issue of who the ball bounced off of and went out. 
And so in the middle of this, I mean, we're getting heated. Now, if any of you have ever met David Green, anybody in here know David Green? It would, it's really foolish for me to be in an argument with a guy who could very easily kick my tail. David is, is a big, strong guy. But, you know, I was angry, and, and my emotions got the better of me, and I was not thinking clearly. And so, I mean, we're getting heated. Like, I'm, I'm being, I'm, we're laughing about it now. Like, it was not good. It was not pretty. So finally, we do the thing that you always do when you're stuck in a sports game and somebody shoots for the ball. And of course, the wrong thing happened and they got the ball. And so I didn't let it go. And I'm just, the whole rest of the game, we're just jawing back and forth, back and forth, giving it to each other. And I mean, it's just like, and I'm a pretty sarcastic person. So, you know, anyways, I'm just feeding it. And it was bad. For like 15, 20 minutes, this went on. So the game ends, and we're kind of done, and everybody's breaking up from the day, and we're just still frustrated. We're at the point where, like, we would reached the point where we basically told each other, like, if this doesn't stop, this is going to get bad, and had walked off. And thankfully, thankfully, after calming down for a few minutes, we found each other, we looked at each other and went, this is stupid. It doesn't matter who the ball went off. I love you. This is ridiculous. And made it right. And, and did that so that we could make sure other people knew we had made it right. But it was, an embar- I mean, it was an embarrassing moment. I found myself that week going like, God, what is going on with me? I'm old. I'm in my 30s. I'm in a gym. Eight people are here. Nobody cares the outcome of this game. Why do I care so much? And yet there's just this thing, this justice thing in us when we have been wronged, and it's so obvious, no matter how big or how small it may be, we can dig in. And maybe that's just me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But we can dig in, and we can fight for that. And, and yet, God's heart for us is that, that we would see the person beyond the fight, beyond the complaint, beyond the problem. Am I so dug in on either how I was wronged or how right I am that I am, I am literally going to let a rift come between me and this person? I mean, we had, we had 30 minutes of like we couldn't even really be standing next to each other. And I can tell you, if we had left that gym and not resolved it, it would have been lingering for a while until we dealt with it. So we're going to talk about resolving conflict this morning, and we're going to, our main passage is in Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. So if you want to turn there in your own Bible, you can do that and follow along. Um, we'll put some of this up on the screen for you as well. And so Jesus is talking, I'm going to give you the context in a minute, but Jesus is having this kind of ongoing teaching and conversation with his disciples and some others that are present. And in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Or we might say as like a lawyer or used car salesman. Apologies to any lawyers or used car salesmen in the room. Just trying to give you a sense of the the dialogue there. Okay, so, so here's the deal. Jesus gives some specific instruction on how to resolve conflict. And he even gives us some steps that we can take. And so we're going to walk through these a little bit. Before we do that, we need to understand the context of this story. Because Jesus is asking us to do something pretty bold and pretty radical. He says, go to the person and deal with the problem. And if we read this with the wrong lens, man, it, this can almost empower me to be like, yeah, I need to go to him and call him out and like, let's fix this. The story that Jesus tells right before this is the story of a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. And so he leaves the 99, finds the one, picks it up, carries it back, restores it back into the community of sheep, and then throws a party with his friends and celebrates. Jesus is setting the tone of how we approach resolving conflict. 
the heart behind resolving conflict is about restoring and celebrating. Restoring and celebrating. So this requires something. It requires me seeking out the person that there's an issue with. It requires me having a mentality to want to restore that person back into right standing. And then the result, if it all works out, if it all goes according to plan, is we get to enjoy the benefits of that. We get to enjoy that. And I've experienced this in my marriage over and over again. I would define my marriage with my wife as healthy and loving and awesome. I love my wife. She is my best friend. Our relationship over the years has just grown and deepened. Does that mean that my wife and I don't fight or argue or have disagreements? Any close friends of mine in the room want to vouch the fact that my wife and I argue and have, we do. We don't, we don't see eye to eye. We have issues. We have problems. But we've learned over the years more and more to put this stuff into practice. And sometimes it takes cooling down for a minute. But we come back to each other. We find one another. And the beauty is our relationships can actually deepen when we've learned to work our way through those challenges. On the other side of it, there's joy. There's acceptance. My, my wife and I begin to establish with each other, you're more important than me being right. I remember at one point early in our marriage, I've been married for two or three years, and I'm going to one of my, my pastor, counselor friends and just talking through one of those frustrating fights. And, you know, it wasn't just the argument itself that I wanted resolved. It was a, a topic that kept coming up over and over again. And I was just frustrated. And he looked at me and he just said, how, how bad would it be if you never won another argument in your marriage? Well, I thought it would be really, really bad. I was annoyed that he even said it. I'm like, what do you mean if I never win another argument? But I'm right. At least some of the time, I'm right. But it, it, it changed something in my mind. Unfortunately, I didn't put it into practice right away. I learned over time. But it, it flipped a switch in my mind. Am I trying to win my wife or am I trying to win the argument? And so what began to change in, in our relationship is as we would have these conflicts when we learn to work through them and sacrifice what I want versus what she wants, it deepened our relationship and we have more joy and more peace and it's hard earned. It's rooted in something real. We're not pretending everything's okay when in reality I stay annoyed over and over again. I'm actually learning to let some of those things go. She's learning to let a whole lot go because she has to live with me. And we experience peace and joy, and it's based in something real. And so that's the heart. That's the context behind this. I should not even take step number one towards resolving a conflict if it's to be right, if it's to make my own case, or if it's to defend myself. If that's how I'm feeling, I'm not ready for the conversation. I need to step back. I need to pray. God, help me with this. Help me get to the place where I'm ready for this conversation. God, help me to get to a place where... I can own what's mine. I can own what's mine. Now, we're going to talk in a few minutes about what happens when the other person has been wrong. Okay? There, there are real things that need to be confronted at times. But the mentality behind it should be, I want to restore and bring health and bring healing. Um, the word for restore in the New Testament, um, it's the word mend, like they would use to mend or fix a net. That's one of the ways that word gets used. It repairs things. It patches things up. It brings them back to a place where they function properly. So let's walk through this progression a little bit. Okay, so first of all, step number one. When our brother sins against us, we call our three best friends on the phone and tell them all about it. Is that what it said? No. I stew on it, let it eat me up. I kind of just, I just kind of, I just run it through my mind over and over again. No. When, 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 you, when your brother sins against you, you go tell him his fault. And notice what the scripture says. Alone. Go do it alone. You know, my example of the, of the basketball thing, like me and David had to work that out one-on-one, -on -one, but we intentionally did that in front of the people that had seen the mess. We wanted them to know we had worked it out. But see, early in the fight, that wasn't what we were up to. Early in the fight, we're recruiting people. 
right? I need people to help defend me. You saw it, right? You saw how that happened. You saw how that was mishandled. You see how he's missing it. Now he's just being stubborn, right? Those are all the things. None of that worked towards resolving the conflict. The more I strengthened my case, the harder he worked to strengthen his, and we just got more dug in. None of that work was helping resolve the conflict. What finally resolved it was just going to him one-on-one and saying, bro, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That doesn't matter. We go one-on-one. Most of our conflicts would be resolved if we would just put that into practice. Most of them would be resolved right there. I don't even think we realize sometimes how much the other person is just as a mess as we are. They wish it was resolved. They hate that it's just hanging over things. And if we could just sit down and face-to-face and establish I love you. I'm sorry. Hey, what you did hurt me and give, like, gave each other opportunity to just work it out. That would resolve a lot of our stuff instead of all the time that we waste stewing on it or talking to a bunch of other people about it. We go one-on-one. Now, at times, that will not work. That will not work. And so then Jesus says, take one or two others along with you. And notice what he says here, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What he's saying, it's not just about getting people to defend you. He's saying by getting a couple of outside voices, they can see clearly. When you're in a conflict, sometimes you're so in the middle of it, you're right about how you're feeling. You're right about what's been said or done to you, but you're also kind of blind to maybe the whole story. You're maybe blind to how certain things you've said or done, even if it wasn't your intention have hurt the other person. And so there are times where if you can't work that out with the two of you, a couple of outside voices that love both of you, right? I'm not calling my buddies that are just gonna take my side. Who are people that this person trusts and I trust that will be an outside voice that will work towards helping resolve this? And we can bring in a couple of outside voices and just amongst a few friends, if we're willing to let some others speak into it, we can can resolve the issue. Now, there are times where you've gone through this process. You've tried to work out the problem. This person has blown it, hurt you, sinned. You've brought some other people in. They're like, man, we're still not able to work this out. Then you, you kind of appeal to, Jesus even uses the word, take it to the church. It doesn't mean take it to everybody in the church. He's talking about appealing to to spiritual authority, leadership, maturity, somebody kind of a little older and wiser that can help you along the way and see if they can bring a resolution and and bring them in. And so there's, there's an order, there's a progression to this. This isn't about legalistically following an order. It's about giving every opportunity for it to be resolved. See, all too often we stop at step one. I try to resolve it. We butt heads. I try to confront the person. We can't figure it out. And it's like, well, they're just stubborn. This is an impasse. We can't do anything about it. But the scripture walks us through how how we can work towards resolving it. Until we've given ourselves to walk out these steps, there's still opportunity for the conflict to be repaired. And so we walk it out in this way. Is this making sense to you guys? I know this is just kind of really specific and practical, but this Jesus laid this out for us And then he says, listen, if you've gotten all the way to that point, if you've gotten all the way to the point where you've tried one-on-one, you've brought in other people, you've called your pastor up on the phone or some mature believers that you trust, and everybody's looking at each other going, man, this person just doesn't want to hear it. They've dug their heels in. They don't want to hear it. They're not willing to resolve this problem. Um, you've, You've owned your part. You've let people speak into your life about your part, and you're just stuck. Then Jesus says, Okay, if you've reached that point, then let that person be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that implies some things. A Gentile and a tax collector, how were they viewed by the Jews? Anybody know? You can throw it out. It's all right. How were they viewed? Tony, give me the the verbal explanation of the Heisman move you're doing there. They're outsiders, right? They're not in the family. Cool. How How did Jesus call us to treat outsiders? Think about that. Did Jesus have a heart for Gentiles? Did he have a heart for tax collectors? Yeah. You know who wrote this passage? The tax collector. Matthew's recording this story. 
And he's even writing down this idea that a tax collector was kind of a negative term. But he, he had experienced firsthand God's loving heart drawing him to himself. So even when we reach the point where we have to say, okay, relationship is kind of cut off here. You're unwilling to resolve this, so we're, we're at an impasse. We've tried everything. We've brought people in. We're stuck. You can acknowledge that the relationship is at a stuck point. There's a wedge there. But our heart towards that person isn't to reject them as an outsider. It's just to acknowledge that's reality. Right now, there's a gap. But my heart is that that person would be restored. My heart is that Jesus would draw them and win them back. Is this making sense to you guys? Because see, if we're not careful, what we do when we enter into these conflicts um, and stuff gets dug in and we're not making progress, it starts to, to feel really good to just be out of it, to just be done with it and, and be like, okay, I'm allowed to be free of this now. But in our hearts, we're never really free. I can be at peace. I don't have to let it eat me up. I can hand them over to the Lord. But, but we're never really out of it. We keep loving people. Now, I want to give you just a couple of different thoughts before we move on to another section here. Number one, I want to talk about how to restore. So let's say you've reached the point. It could be the very first conversation, you and this person one-on-one. It could be you and a couple people now are speaking. How do we actually walk that out? Let's look at the book of Galatians for this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Paul's writing to the church there. I just, I just want to emphasize, by the way, before I start to read this, all of these passages are directly about people that we are in family-type community with. This isn't him just talking about like outsiders that we barely know. He's talking about church family. He's using the terms brother, or we could say sister here, church family. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, can y'all say any? Any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore. Not reject, not kick out, not feel justified in being irritated with. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Restoration and gentleness should be our heartbeat. Then notice what he says. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now that doesn't just mean you might be tempted into that same sin although it is referring that, the very thing I can judge people about. Have you noticed this about yourself? The things I judge people about tend to be the things I struggle with the most. It drives me nuts when I realize that, when I'm I'm just going crazy over something with a person and I realize, man, I'm looking in the mirror right now. We tend to do that. So just be aware, like you can fall into that same stuff, but also you can be tempted just to mishandle it. Verse two, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So here's what he's saying. How we approach a person matters. If I am approaching someone from a feeling of superiority, even if it's under the guise of I want to work this out, but if I have that feeling of superiority or they're the one really blowing it and I've got this figured out, I'm missing the boat. I don't consider myself higher than others. I approach someone on this even level because while I might be right in this situation, I'm a broken, flawed person that is being forgiven all the time and making mistakes all the time. And so I approach the person as if we are on equal footing. I'm here to tell you, I've messed this up. I've gone to people thinking I was handling it right and I've damaged relationship because they picked up on what I didn't even realize I was doing they picked up on the fact that I was showing up as like the guy who had it figured out and was sort of talking down to them. We've got to come in with a spirit of gentleness, looking to restore and meeting somebody on their level. Now, included verse 9, this passage, you should read the whole thing. It continues to unpack how we walk out resolving stuff with each other, but I just thought it was interesting. There's those little Bible quotes that we put on our fridges and we repeat and we pull them out of context, and that's fine. They're good tidbits. They're encouraging. But notice verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This isn't about being a good little Christian following the rules. 
He's saying don't do, get weary of doing good in working out your relationships. Don't get worn down. Don't get weary. Put in the work. And he says it's worth it. If you will hang in there with people, if you will work at it through the difficulty, in due season you'll reap the reward. Sure, there's going to be times where you're looking at the ground going, man, nothing is growing here. It hasn't rained in weeks. It's getting dusty. It doesn't even look like good soil anymore. Like, this isn't going anywhere. But if we will hang in there in our relationships and not get weary, in due season, it's going to pay off. In due season, we will reap the reward if we don't give up. Now, I've got to tell you, I have both experienced that in some really cool ways where I've watched God restore relationships that had been broken down for a while, I also have to be honest with you, I'm still waiting for some. Close ones. Close ones that I'm longing for the day when it's, when it's paid off. When in due season, I've reaped the reward. But right now, it's just an act of faith. God, please will you do this? When will you do this? And it is a battle not to grow weary. There are times where I've just decided it's just easier to just completely cut off and isolate myself from that and not deal with it. And I've even done that at times. And God's had to bring me back to having a heart where I'm at least, even if I can't talk to that person, even if they won't work it out, I can at least be praying for them and I can learn to adopt the posture of the father in the story of the prodigal son where I'm looking and I'm ready to greet that prodigal when they come back and run and wrap my arms around them and be grateful that it's healed. But in the meantime, I hold on to Jesus and say, Lord, help me to not grow weary. Help me to have an attitude of restoration and gentleness. Help me to bear this burden. And, that, and he does that. He walks that road with us. We're not walking it alone. When it feels most overwhelming to me, it's because I'm carrying it instead of letting him carry me and it. Okay, secondly, the second point I want to make, besides just working with an attitude of restoration and gentleness, is whose responsibility it is when there's a conflict. Whose responsibility is it to initiate? And the truth is, it's both parties. It's both parties. The scripture not only teaches going to the person when they've wronged you, that's the passage we just looked at, Matthew 18, the person had been transgressed against had been sinned against. And so I have been sinned against, therefore I go to the person who hurt me to let them know and work it out. But Jesus also taught in Matthew chapter five, we're gonna take a look at this, verses 21 through 24. First he talks about the heart and then he talks about dealing with the problem. Matthew five, verse 21. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's saying if I'm annoyed, irritated, frustrated, angry, tearing the other person down, insulting them, that's a huge deal. Jesus compares it to murder. That should catch our attention. That should, that should make me aware of something. Why is he comparing it to murder? Because this kind of stuff kills relationships. It rips them off. This involves a mentality that's inward. It also involves words that are coming out, slandering the person, insulting the person, or just storing up anger on the inside. And so Jesus says, listen, if you're in a position where you're worshiping, something happens Verse 23 here, so if if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're at church, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, it's either case. If I'm the offending party and I come to a realization, man, I've been blowing it, I need to initiate and go to that person and try to make it right. The person who has been offended, who has been hurt, who's been sinned against, they're called to go and let the person know, you've hurt me. There are times where they may not be aware. 
There are other times where they may be avoiding, but both parties bear the responsibility to seek out the other one to resolve the conflict. Jesus takes our relationships very seriously, and he wants us to learn more and more how to walk in unity and love. And so he, he teaches us that both parties are responsible to go resolve the issue. I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever done the thing in your mind where you feel like, well, it's kind of on the other person now. Is it just me? Yeah. I'm really quick to, to figure out how it's on them. Most of the time, it still rests on me because both parties are called to resolve the conflict. And so if they don't seem to be doing that, I should do it. I should do it. All with the same mentality we've been teaching to restore in gentleness and in love. Okay, I want to take the next five or ten minutes and I want to talk to you about unresolved conflict. There are cases where you cannot resolve something. I want to talk about how we walk that out. And I, I just want to encourage you, we do all the stuff we've already talked about first. Let's not rush too quickly and jump over all the right steps that we take to then get to the spot where I can go, okay, you know, I don't want to do the Pontius Pilate thing where I'm washing my hands of the situation. All right, so I do all the steps first, but there are times, there's three cases. First of all, there's the case um, where uh, there is actual I'm going to use the word heresy. I don't even know if you guys know what that word means. Heresy, where somebody is literally within the body in a relational context um, preaching things that just absolutely contradict who Jesus is and what God's word says. And there are moments where that can lead us to a place where we can't resolve the conflict. That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday to, to a large degree. We're going to talk about doctrinal stuff. So we're just going to put a pin in that. I just wanted you to know that's one of the instances where we may reach a place where we can't resolve conflict. Okay, the second instance is unchecked sin. Unchecked sin, where this person knows it, it's been acknowledged, it's been identified, and they are not willing to resolve it. And that may cause us to reach a place where we're at an impasse. So let's check this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, you can read the first eight verses to hear the specifics of the story. I'm going to be careful because of who all is in the room, but there was a pretty heinous, immoral thing that was happening in the church um, with, a, with a guy in the church, um, and it was, it was being identified and called out as something that was a real problem. It was an ongoing thing, and you can check that out in verses 1 through 8. And so Paul's now writing and telling them something now has to be done. This is unhealthy, it's wrong, and it's not being resolved. It's ongoing. And so Paul writes and he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now notice this little parenthetical here. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So he says, first of all, I'm not talking to you about lost people. We live in a world with broken people where there's all kinds of, of stuff happening all the time. And he's not saying, remove yourself from interacting with them. He said, listen, we may as well not be on this planet if that's the case. So he's making it very clear. I'm talking about people within your church community, your church body that you're in relationship with, and there are unresolved lifestyle sins continuing that are going unaddressed. Then we need to do something about it. Um, verse 11 but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church, or sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Whoa. Does that freak out anybody else when they read that? There's just certain Bible verses that I just wish they weren't in there. It'd be so much easier. I mean, this is like bold, direct, hard language. Paul is saying you can reach a point where there's such an ongoing situation going on with a person that it's time for them to be removed from fellowship. We're going to talk next week a lot about the difference between judging and discerning and what we're called to do in those cases. 
But I want to just note a couple of things, okay? Number one, this is an extreme case. This is an extreme case. The sin that was going on was extreme, and all the steps had been taken that Jesus already describes, and this person is not dealing with the problem, and they're not open to change. It's an extreme case. But God does call us to a higher standard as church family. And part of the problem is, see, God has the bigger picture. He recognizes that not only is it damaging for this person who's sinning, it's harmful for other people around them. It says it's okay. It lets other people walk in complacency. There's other people involved that are being hurt by the sin that's going on. We never sin in a vacuum. We don't. It affects us and it affects others. And so God's saying this needs to be dealt with. Now, I want to leave you with some some encouraging news. Even as this person is being brought to a place where they're asked to leave and told you you can't, can't be here, you can't be present because you're not dealing with this sin, if we go to Paul's next letter in 2 Corinthians, it's a letter he sent a short time later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, most, if not all, biblical experts believe that this passage is talking about the same person, about the same person. And notice what has transpired over time. As this person was asked to be removed because they weren't dealing with the problem, check this out, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's referring to this guy, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So he's saying, hey, listen, I get it. I've been at a distance. I've been observing this from a distance. I love you guys, but y'all are the ones living in it. And Paul's saying, this has hurt y'all. This situation with this bro has hurt and it has caused pain. Verse six, for such a one This punishment by the majority is enough. Paul said it's been long enough. So that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, even when we go to the extreme case of saying, this is unresolved sin that needs to be dealt with and the person needs to step out, the heart behind it is still ultimately for restoration. The Bible talks about godly sorrow leading to repentance. And there are times where we just need to to look fully in the face the real results and consequences of our sin. We need to see it for what it is and the damaging effect that it's having. And and sometimes it takes us getting all the way to that, that breaking point where we see it and we turn. Has anybody experienced that personally in your life? where you've battled a sin or a struggle and you hit what we'll call like rock bottom? Anybody, just me? Yeah, you've experienced that, right? You don't wanna be there, but did you see God use that in your life? Did Did you see him allow you to reach the end of yourself and go, God, look where I am and look what I've done? It's that moment where the prodigal wakes up and goes, wow, I'm with the pigs and their food looks better than mine. I'm starving. And it's in that moment that that we can turn and return. So we start by pursuing. We start by working to restore. And if the person is unwilling and unable and resistant, there reaches a point where there is a break in relationship. And yet, no matter how bad the sin, how rough the struggle, when they're ready to return, when there's genuine, real repentance and godly sorrow, our heart towards them is restore them in love restore them in love. Okay. I love this verse in James. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's what God is calling us to we get to participate in watching people's lives radically changed when we're willing to walk out the kind of conflict resolution that Jesus teaches and that he invites us into. We can be a part of those kinds of miracles. We can see even the most extreme cases resolved back to health and wholeness. That's what's available. 
Okay, I want to give you all some closing words on the third thing. I said there were three. There was heresy that we'll talk about next week. There's, un, there's unresolved sin, unchecked sin. And then there's just the instance where the other party just doesn't want to resolve the conflict. They just aren't willing to. It may not be there's this big heinous sin going on, but you just can't fix it. You've tried, and they don't want, they're not participating. I, I want you all to receive a little freedom this morning. Because we can't force people, in fact, we're not supposed to force people to do something they don't want to do. If God was willing to give me the kind of freedom, if he was willing to give Adam the kind of freedom, where Adam could like ruin it for the rest of us in the garden, right? Then who am I not to give somebody else the kind of freedom to walk out what they want to walk out? And so what we do is we learn to approach it with, with all the right mindsets and mentalities. Gentleness, working to restore um, there's some verses. Y'all can look at the notes later if you want. We're going to pass them over here. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, if, if you're a note taker, you can jot that down and look at it later. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. They talk about ways we can avoid the petty stuff. Right? So sometimes we just need to let things go. Um, but then ultimately, in Romans chapter 12, verse 18... After Paul unpacks all kinds of stuff about learning to walk in unity, this is, this is how he wraps up the thought. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do your part. Do your part to be at peace. And then be at peace. If, if they're not willing, if they're not ready, if they're not able, it can feel like this cloud that's hovering over you. But, but man, if you have truly given yourself to walking this out, as best you can and you've received help and you've been gentle and you've worked to restore, you've owned your part, you're inviting the other person to resolve it and they won't, you, you have done what you can do to live at peace. And so be at peace with that and trust God that he's at work and that he will work to restore and to heal. And along the way, along the way, we give him our heart to help us have a forgiving mindset a forgiving mindset. I want to close with where we opened. In Matthew chapter 18, after telling the story about the sheep that was found, after walking through biblical conflict resolution, Peter's been hearing all this. And he comes to Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 21. He says this. And Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or other translations might say 70 times seven. It's a lot of times. Jesus' point isn't to get out a piece of paper and write down all 77 times. And when you get to 78, all right, I don't have to forgive anymore. His point is don't keep count. Don't keep count. We're called to forgive continually. And then he tells a story. I want to close with this story tells a story about a servant who owes an incredible debt. Now, to us, these, these words might be meaningless. It's 10,000 talents. If you're like me, you might not necessarily know what that is, what that amounts to. But this guy owes 10,000 talents to his, his master, the guy that he works for. And he doesn't have it. He can't pay it. He's about to be thrown in jail for it because he can't pay. And the master, as he pleads with the master for mercy, for forgiveness of the debt, the master forgives him of the debt. He doesn't just say you can work later to pay it off. He wipes the record clean. You no longer owe me the 10,000 talents. That guy leaves that conversation and he goes and tracks down a bro that owes him 600 denarii and tells him, you pay me now or I'm throwing you in jail. And that guy pleads with him for his debt to be forgiven and he doesn't listen, and he throws him in jail. Now, a denarii amounts to a day laborer's wage, one day's wage. So 600 denarii, if you do the math, it's about 16 weeks worth of work. They were working six days a week in that culture. So about 16 weeks worth of a day laborer's wage is what he was owed. Now, to give you a little context, 600 denarii is what he was owed. 6,000 denarii equals one talent. And the guy owed 10,000 talents. This guy owed a multi-million dollar debt and was forgiven of that debt. And he wouldn't let go of a debt that amounted to about five grand. That's the story that Jesus tells. 
He says, listen, this guy didn't understand how much he had been forgiven and therefore had no concept of how to forgive a large debt against himself. This is the same position we find ourselves in. Guys, our whole issue with conflict resolution, it's not about people. Problems with people is a given. The issue with conflict resolution is remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's remembering that our Savior, while he was on the cross, while the people who had put him there were present and mocking him, said the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We serve a God who has forgiven to an extreme length our debt. And as much as it hurts and it gets weary walking along the road, when we have hard conflicts in our relationships, the debt pales in comparison to what Jesus has forgiven us. And so let's let Jesus teach us how to forgive like he forgives. Now, if you've listened to this message and you've found yourself in here at all, it is very possible to feel frustrated or overwhelmed or discouraged. And I'm just telling you what this message should inspire you to is clinging to Jesus. It should inspire us to go, God, help. I need your help. Help me to forgive. Help me to be gentle. Help me to restore. God, help me to have courage and humility to go resolve conflict. The beauty is he does not call us to do this alone. He's with us. He's in us. He will help us. If you need to talk to him for a while first before you go to the person, he'll help work forgiveness into your heart. He'll help work an attitude of gentleness into your life. He'll do that. We're not alone. And above it all, he says it's worth it for you to live in healthy community with each other. It's worth it. Let's pray. God, we need you and we love you. Lord, we need your help to walk this stuff out. God, I pray that um, we can have your heart towards relationships. God, that we could see ourselves and others for what we really are. God, we are broken people in need of grace. And you give it freely. Lord, would you help us to learn more and more how to give grace to our brothers and sisters? God, help us to be willing to resolve conflict, to, to have an attitude of restoration and gentleness. God, guide us into how to walk that out in a healthy way that brings about healed and whole relationships. Lord, help us to, to not seek out friends that we can complain or talk to or gossip, but help us to be able to seek out godly counsel. We need additional help in a relationship. Um, people who will help because they love both parties. Lord, help us to learn more and more how to walk this out. Jesus, remind us that we're never alone and that your heart for us is to learn how to live in love and community. We love you. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.